Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast on a really important mountain in Israel called Masada. Now, this mountain plateau overlooks the Dead Sea, and it's at the edge of the Judean Desert between what's called Ein Gedi and Sodom. So this is the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. It sits about 1,300 feet above the Dead Sea. And the name Masada, M-A-S-A-D-A, it means strong foundation in Hebrew. And once you hear this story, you're going to realize what a perfect name that is. To those of us living in Arizona, Masada is kind of like a giant mesa, steep sides, sort of flat on top, like a tabletop. The top of the mountain covers around 18 acres. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about the ancient significance of this plateau as well as the importance to so many Jews today. To many, this mountain represents the true spirit of Jewish patriotism. They have quite a story to tell. I have pictures of Masada on my website, studentofthebible.com. We were fortunate enough to visit Masada in 2020. There's two ways now to get to the top, a tram, or you can hike to the top following a circuitous route, which many sojourners today do, especially when they're celebrating an important event like a bar mitzvah or a religious celebration, and also their military does this trek. We took the tram, but for our next visit next year, we are going to climb our way to the top. And I tell you, after you hear this amazing story, you may feel like climbing it as well. What strikes you when you first look at the mountain from way down below on the shores of the Dead Sea is that the mountain walls look really impenetrable, extremely steep, difficult to navigate. It's really hard to imagine anyone climbing it let alone someone building something up there. But they did. Masada was home to many ancient Jewish people, perhaps starting with some of the Maccabees, who settled on Masada after driving the Greeks out of Israel around 103 BC. But the super well-preserved ruins are from about 80 years later, when a tremendously large fortress was built by King Herod. Herod actually built two palaces for himself on Masada. He built these palaces sometime between 37 and 31 BC. Now Masada is located about 61 miles outside of Jerusalem. So to Herod, this was really a perfect winter respite. This is the same King Herod who sought to destroy all the boys to and under once he heard the Magi talk about the birth of Jesus. Yeah, it's that guy. Now, Herod is known for being very jealous and paranoid. So he was jealous and paranoid here as well. So he built two palaces and also huge fortifications all around the top of the mountain. And then he also had an army stationed there at all times. But he really saw the mountain as the perfect fortress because 
you get this impressive 360 degree view from the top. Now this is the same Herod who was also known for pretty amazing architectural feats. He's the guy that oversaw the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It also appears he spared no expense when he built these palaces on Masada. One of the two palaces they actually call the Hanging Palace. And I have a picture of what they believe that it looked like. It's cut into the mountain in three terraces. You know, I always marvel at man's ability to create in such hot, dry conditions, especially on a mountaintop 1,300 feet high. Don't even ask me how they pulled this one off. But as one of my sons always says, you know, anything's possible when you literally have tens of thousands of slaves at your disposal. That's true. So I've described the climate in Israel. At the Dead Sea, it's extremely hot and dry during the summer. And you can't drink the water from the Dead Sea because it's 10 times saltier than the ocean. But Herod, not to be outdone, had a sophisticated water system. It collected runoff water from flash floods. And his engineers built two dams near the peak. And then these aqueducts captured water flowing through the dry valley veins and channeled the rainwater into cisterns. It's believed that they had a capacity of over 10 million gallons of water. So according to historians, this water collection system was able to collect enough water from a single day's rain to sustain life for a thousand people for a period of two or three years. We need something like that now. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, I'm going to quote from him quite a bit. He wrote a lot about this. Uh, he tells us that Herod's watering system was so good, he even had a horticulture site on top of the mountain with super rich soil that allowed them to grow their own food, to basically be self-sustaining in case something happened where they couldn't get food elsewhere. This is a really important point to remember. Herod had a swimming pool, of course he did, private gardens, and at least three bathhouses on top of this plateau. One of the amazing features in one of the bathhouses still remains today. We can see part of this. They called this room the hot room, and it had a suspended floor supported by these big stone pillars, and you can still see the stone pillars. And what would happen is hot air would blow from a furnace outside and then go under the floor and through clay pipes along the walls and it would heat the room to the desired temperature. How cool is that? Or how hot is that? And then, of course, when you don't want it to be super hot, like during the summer, you want it to be cool to maintain interior coolness in the hot, dry climate of Masada. The buildings themselves had these super thick walls constructed of layers of hard dolomite stone, and then they covered them with plaster. A 4,500-foot-long double stone wall, close to 20 feet high in some places, outlines the entire perimeter of the mountain. There's a 13-foot-wide space between these two walls, and those were separated into storerooms used for weapons and then also living quarters. 
more than 30 towers that ran along this wall, and they had four gates. Herod used rooms to hold food, oil, wine, dried fruit. He definitely knew how to live. It's truly amazing when you visit there to see how much of his construction is still standing. But this isn't the best part of the story. After Herod's death in 4 BC, Masada was then taken over by the Romans and they built a military station at Masada. Remember, it's a great vantage point. You can see people coming from miles around. So the Romans had this mountain fortress for about 70 years. But then the Zealots, now this is a Jewish sect who resolutely opposed Roman rule. They took the mountain of Masada by surprise in 66 AD, which means they had to fight a Roman army and they won and they took the mountain. Now this group of Jews were called the Sicarii, S-I-C-A-R-I-I, and they were led by a man named Menachem and they take over the complex. During this time, this is what is often called the Jewish-Roman Wars. And this is where the Jews start to revolt against Roman rule throughout Judea. This entire revolt lasted from about 66 to 70 AD. So as part of this war in 66 AD, Jewish armies started to take back Jerusalem and all of the different provinces from the Roman army. But of course the Romans weren't happy about this. Now a lot of what we know about this time because it's not written in the Bible, we know from a famous Jewish historian called Josephus and he writes that a Jewish revolutionary government was set up and started to really take back the entire country. And then he says, General Vespasian, who became the Roman emperor later in 69 AD, he was sent from Rome to restore order to Israel and crush the rebellion. So according to Josephus, Vespasian, um, together with the Roman armies, um, he starts and he enters Galilee. And this is actually where the historian Josephus himself was with his army. And he's heading up the Jewish forces. Well, unfortunately, Josephus' army was confronted by Vespasian and this huge army, and so Josephus' army disbands. Soon, Roman forces are sweeping the country. On August 29th, 70 AD, this is when Jerusalem fell and the temple was burned. Okay, but what's been happening at Masada, the desert fortress? Well, after Jerusalem collapses, the emperor Titus, he returns to Rome. He's a big hero. Um, but, you know, he left behind the Roman army and they're moving around Judea, restoring order, putting down final resistance by the zealots. Masada's still a stronghold. When Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were attacked by the Romans, Really, there was only a small handful of men and women and children who escaped. And so some of them then joined the zealots on top of the mountain fortress of Masada. 
Now, this is going to be the last and longest of the Jewish resistance battles. So the Romans, they're commanded by Lucius Silva. Masada is the last place not under Roman control. And not to be outdone, they leave Jerusalem and head across the desert for Masada. This is such an incredible story. Now, I'm going to quote some of this story from a website called IsraelMyGlory.org. This is what they said. Upon reaching the foot of the Masada Fortress, Roman Commander Silva was determined to tackle the daunting task ahead of him. Sizing up the situation, he built eight base camps around the mountain. And here's an aside. Yeah, you can actually see many of the remainders of these base camps. So when you're standing on top of the mountain, you look down. It's crazy. The... Uh, Zealots were able to see all of the Roman base camps from down below. One of the base camps was placed on a mountain. Yeah, and you can still see this too. Placed on a mountain overlooking Masada from the south. And it provided a good vantage point for spying on the Zealot activity. So Commander Silva's headquarters was located in one of the larger camps northwest of the fortress. And when you're on top, you can see all of this. So the website continues. Silva's first objective was to prevent the Sakari from escaping. Okay, that makes sense. He constructed a two-mile-long, six-foot-thick siege wall around the entire base of the mountain. Silva's second objective was to break through the wall on Masada's summit. Remember, I was describing this huge fortress that's double thick all the way around the top of the mountain. Now, he knew a protracted siege was out of the question since Masada had abundant provisions, right? Remember all the storerooms that Herod had made? So, he built an assault ramp on the natural geological spur that juts out from Masada's western side. His job was no small feat. Using two to three foot long timbers to support the rubble, Silva's troops brought in enough dirt and stones to construct an assault ramp. Okay, hold that thought. So as I just said, the Roman army built a rampart wall around the mountain to prevent the zealots from leaving the mountain. But remember, the Jewish defenders, they had plenty of food, they had water, so they were ready. So after months and months of siege without success, now the Romans build this massive earth ramp on the western side of the fortress, built with tons of stone and earth. Okay, now the whole time, the zealots are watching the Romans do this. And meanwhile, they're rolling down 100-pound boulders on top of them. And they've also found remnants of slingshots. So, you know, think of David and Goliath. They're shooting them with stones. So this ramp that the Romans build is 1,968 feet long, rises 200 feet to the fortress walls. It's believed... There were 10,000 Roman soldiers. There's only 960 zealots fighting them off from the top of Masada. 
It's believed this battle lasted three years. Finally, the Romans pushed a siege tower up the ramp. That's what they were doing. Equipped with a battering ram, they breached the fortress. A typical Roman battering ram would have been this huge wooden beam with an iron tip kind of shaped like a ram's head would be suspended by ropes inside the siege engine and the beam was pulled back by the soldiers and then thrust forward with great power. You've probably seen this before. And the historian Josephus wrote, you know, no wall or tower could ever withstand such pounding. But that's not the end of the story. I'm going to quote again from IsraelMyGlory.org. Knowing this, the Sakari reinforced their outer stone wall. Because remember, they're watching this going on the whole time. So they reinforced the outer stone wall with an ingenious device. Using the beams from the ceilings of 90% of these buildings on top of Masada, the Sakari built another double wall of wood with earth filled in in between. It could have been 70 to 80 feet long, about 60 feet wide, 24 to 27 feet high. Wow. And then they quote, apparently the battering ram had little effect on this type of wall other than actually compacting the dirt that filled in even more with each strike. The success of this new wooden wall was short-lived, however, for it had one major weakness. Can you guess? Yeah, it could burn. The authors continue. The Roman commander Silva ordered his troops to throw torches on it. Soon, it was ablaze. When a north wind suddenly blew the fire back on to the Romans, the Jewish defenders felt a surge of hope. But then the wound changed again, driving the flames back up onto the wall. As the wall burned ferociously, the Sakari realized the end was near. Okay, but this story does not end the way you might think. When the Romans entered the fortress, they discovered 960 inhabitants had committed mass suicide, preferring death at their own hands to slavery or execution. How do we know this? Two women and five children were able to successfully hide in a subterranean cavern, and they lived to tell the tale. We learn more of this story from Josephus. He writes that he had been given a full account of the siege by the two women who survived by hiding inside a drain. The women recounted the story that when it became evident that the Romans were going to breach the wall, the Sicarii decided to make a pact. Suicide was against Jewish belief. So according to the women, the zealots drew lots to kill each other. So therefore, it was only the last man who had to take his own life. 
Now, they've actually found pottery shards with people's names on them. I've seen this. So that corroborates this amazing story. Josephus wrote that the zealots cast lots to choose 10 men to kill the remainder, and then they drew lots and chose among themselves the one man who would kill himself. Josephus says that the women recounted the leader's final speech. Since long ago resolved never to be servants to the Romans, nor to any other than to God himself, who alone is the true and just Lord of mankind, the time is now come that obliges us to make that resolution true in practice. We were the very first that revolted, and we are very last to fight against them. And I cannot but esteem it is favor that God has granted us, that it is still in our power to die bravely and in a state of freedom. Masada was the last act of the Jewish war. The fact that it took almost three years for a Roman army of 10,000 to attack a group of under a thousand men, women, and children is a story that marvels us to this day. Masada has long been a favorite pilgrimage for Jewish groups. The words of the Israeli national anthem express the yearning in every heart of every Jewish person since the Romans breached Masada's wall. To live in freedom in the land of Zion and Jerusalem. I hope you've enjoyed this true story of Masada the amazing desert fortress. As you ponder this story, know that God is our strong fortress. He's our strength, our shield, our firm foundation. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Have a blessed day.